to you. It is good to be with you this morning to open God's word. And as we have already sung this morning and have been reminded of many times, we are not here because of anything that we've done, but we're here because of what Christ has done for us. And we have hope, we have forgiveness of sins, we have righteousness, and we have eternal life because we've been united to him by faith. And so let's now go to our good and gracious and merciful Heavenly Father and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we come thankful for all of the ways that you're good and gracious to us. We thank you for the ways that you have ministered to us already this morning, and we come expectant for you to continue to minister to us as we open your word. Father, we pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would be receptive to your truth and hearts that would love your word. And Father, come and do the work that only you can The things that we know not, we pray you would teach us. And the things that we have not, we pray you'd give us. And the things that we are not, we pray that you would make us. We pray that you would do all of that for Christ's sake. And we pray in his name. Amen. It is Thanksgiving weekend. And the holiday season is now upon us. The holiday season is in full swing. The holiday season starts earlier and earlier every year especially if you look on the retail front. This is a time of year, though, that even the world thinks is to be filled with joy and hope and good things. But for many, this time of year, November and December, the holiday season, can be filled with darkness and pain. Maybe darkness and pain feel a lot closer to you than joy and hope do as you sit here this morning. Or perhaps it's not that pronounced, but there is a gnawing sense within you that all is not well, and you can't seem to shake it. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 73. We're going to be considering this wonderful psalm this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We will be getting the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me, and you'll be able to track along with me that way, with us that way. Many in the room may be familiar with this psalm. Others may not be, but regardless, when I read it in just a moment, I trust that you will be interested in what the Lord would have to say to us today from this wonderful passage. I did truth in advertising. I preached Psalm 73 a few years ago at CBC, and this is a psalm that the elders have discussed and have talked about me preaching every few years in perpetuity. This is one of several because the text is so good. Psalm 73 is loved by many for good reason. It resonates with our experience. It is, at points, breathtakingly honest. Like we read it and we're like, is it okay to even talk like that? To even speak that way? As I've engaged with it again this week, the Lord has been good to me in just reflecting on life and sorrow and life under the sun and the goodness and grace of God and the hope of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. The psalmist's honesty in Psalm 73 is unsettling for many. It's a little bit unnerving, especially for those of us who have come of age 
and cut our teeth in the evangelical church. So without any more comment by way of introduction from me, let's look to the word of God as we now read it together. Psalm 73. This is God's word. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. So I do not really have a, an outline for us today. And before anybody falls out of your seats, it's going to be okay. People who know me are probably concerned for my well-being that I don't have an outline for the message this morning. But not to fear, I will give us some headings, some headers as we make our way through the passage. This is one of those texts that almost preaches itself. It's so compelling and so gripping. So with all that, just by way of the plan, loosely, let's just make our way through this passage. We will begin ourselves with the inspired heading, a Psalm of Asaph. Who is this man? What can we say about him? Well, Asaph was of the tribe of Levi, and we've been making our way through the book of Genesis, just finished it recently, so that should ring some bells for many. Asaph was a contemporary of David, that is King David. You can read of Asaph, for example, in the book of 1 Chronicles. David 
we are told, put him in charge of the worship music that was performed at the tent of meeting. So remember, this is before Solomon built the temple. So the tent of meeting was the place of worship for the congregation of Israel. So this man is in charge of the worship music there. Not only was he in charge of that worship music, including psalms that David would have written, he himself also wrote psalms. Twelve of them are attributed to Asaph. Psalm 50, and then Psalms 73 through 83. So let's put our eyes now on verse 1. It functions in the psalm almost like a disclaimer, like a warning. Asaph, from the jump, out of the gate, is like, okay, look, this is what is true, and this is where I ended up. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen? Amen. He is good to his people. He is good to those who are pure in heart, meaning those who have trusted in Christ for righteousness, just put simply. Those who do not trust in themselves, but trust in the Lord. He is good. But then Asaph goes on. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But there was a time that I was not so sure that he was. He's reflecting back on the wrong things that he thought as he's reacting to life as he's processing his own life and as he's surveying the lives of others around him, Asaph is reflecting back on the things that he thought that were wrong and on the things that he felt that were wrong. That's what we're going to get for a large portion of this psalm. Then in verses 2 and 3, Asaph is going to tell us where he was. Verse 2, he tells us that his feet had almost stumbled and his steps had nearly He was in a precarious place. He was not doing well. Verse 3, he says, it's going to give us even more information here, because for I was envious of the arrogant and of the wicked when I saw their prosperity. Asaph was looking at his life and looking at the lives of people around him, looking at his life, looking at the lives of the wicked. And how was he processing that? Well, Asaph, like so many of us as fallen human beings, found himself in a place where he's saying, I don't like my life. I like their life. I don't want my life. I want their life. And God, I'm contemplating doing whatever it takes to have that life even if that means changing everything that I think about you. Have you ever been there? Many people have been. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. There was a time when I wasn't sure that God is in fact good. The psalmist Asaph, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is immortalizing his innermost thoughts and feelings, and perhaps one of the darkest seasons of his life. It's interesting. I mean, I don't need to labor this, but it's interesting that in the church, at least for many of us as we've grown up in it, we often don't allow one another to go here, like where Asaph goes. We don't talk this way. 
We discourage people from ever talking this way because we think it impious. Now, to be clear, to be clear, it is wrong to doubt God. It is wrong to question God's goodness. It is wrong to question his love and grace and kindness to us. But because we are sinners and because life is often hard, we tend to wrestle and struggle and doubt. And there needs to be room in the church to talk the way Asaph writes. Now hear me out on this. In saying that, we're not encouraging doubt. We are not encouraging or condoning foolishness or the abandonment of reasonableness. Far from it. All we're saying is that compassion and honesty are needed. We're saying that God uses the church to keep us. Amen? He does. He uses this. And we need to be able to talk honestly with one another about what we're thinking and what we're feeling, even if we know it's wrong. And I would say, especially if we know it's wrong, we need to be able to talk to each other. And we need to know that that is not going to be met with scoffing and ridicule out of hand, but that we can engage, we can be encouraged in the Lord's word and what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, even as we wrestle even as we struggle. The church should be the safest place in the world for a person who is struggling against sin. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying these words intentionally. For the person struggling against sin, the church is the safest place in the world. For the person struggling against doubt, struggling against and fighting against wrong thoughts and feelings, the church should be the safest place in the world. Asaph, in other words, in this psalm, writes what we think. He writes what we feel. You know, the things that like the roof of your car hears when you're driving down the road, falling apart, the things that we scream into our pillows, that's what he writes down. And God is big enough to handle it. Now in verses 4 to 12... Asaph is going to describe the arrogant and the wicked. And I, I want you to track with me, right? You, you heard the psalm read earlier. You know where we're headed. But Asaph is going to describe the wicked and the arrogant. He's going to lay it out. He looks around. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're doing great. Everything goes well for them until they die. Their whole life long. They're fat. They're sleek. They've got plenty to eat. They're well taken care of. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They just don't deal with the things that all of the rest of us deal with. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. They're proud and haughty in everything they do. They walk around that way. They do whatever they want to do to have whatever they want to have. They use people, manipulate people, Oppress people, take advantage of people, all for their own gain. Their eyes swell out through fatness. So great is the opulence that they know. Their eyes are fat, for goodness sakes. Their hearts overflow with foolishness. They scoff and they speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. 
They even set their mouths against the heavens. They blaspheme God. They slander him. They speak ill of him. They mock him. And their tongue struts through the earth doing this. What does this produce? Verse 10, therefore his people, God's people, as a result of observing all of that, they turn back to these people and assess them and say, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with this. I guess this is okay. It's going well for them. Maybe this is what I should do. Verse 11, and they even ask this question, God's people in assessing the prosperity of the wicked and the arrogant. They say, well, maybe God doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't see what I'm seeing. He's oblivious. Is there knowledge in the most high? Does he understand? Okay, real talk, right? This is where Asaph is, where he was for a time. Then in verses 13 to 15, he's just considered the wicked. Now he's going to think about himself and his lot in life as he sees it. Here we go. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I have pursued righteousness, he says, and I've, I've done that in vain. I've worked to keep my heart and my hands clean, and it's been for nothing. In fact, what have I seen for my effort? What have I seen for my striving after righteousness? What have I gotten for it? He answers that in verse 14. Being stricken is all I've known. And every morning, constantly, I'm rebuked. In my pursuit of righteousness, says Asaph, and in my striving to honor and please God, all I've known is hardship and suffering and discipline and correction. The wicked, they do whatever they want. They don't give a rip about God. They don't pursue righteousness and everything goes well for them. Verse 15. It gets worse from his perspective. What's more, I couldn't even talk about it. I couldn't even talk the way that I wanted to talk because if I had, I would have betrayed the people of God. People would have been harmed. Why does he say that? Because of his post in Israel, because of his position. So he's saying, all I know is affliction and rebuke, and I can't even say what I want to say. Such is my lot in life. Now, at this point, I want to make a couple of observations. First observation. Asaph, up to this point, the things that he's writing, he's like us. He's thinking in terms of retribution. We all tend to do this. Thinking in terms of retribution goes something like this. The more good I do, the more good I get. In this life, the more good I do, the more good I get. And conversely, the more bad I do, the more bad I get. Saints, friends, if we think that way in a fallen world, we will go insane. Genesis chapter 3, and the fall of man, sin enters the world, the creation is cursed and man along with it. As of that point in the history of the world, things are no longer the way they ought to be. We have to own that. Fairness, as we always like to talk about it, fairness went away with the fall. And now, because of sin and because of the curse and all of those things, 
If we clamor for justice, we need to be careful how we speak because we all stand rightly condemned before the Lord. But back to the matter at hand as far as this thinking about retribution, the more good I do, the more good I get, the more bad I do, the more bad I get in this life, it doesn't hold. There are plenty of people who are concerned to do good in this world and suffer horribly. We all know that. We've seen it. There are people who are not at all concerned with doing good in this world and live comfortable lives. Now, second observation. Whenever we face suffering and pain, we are inevitably confronted with questions about God. This is true, by the way, for every human being. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. For every human being, when we encounter real suffering, the biggest question for us is the why question. Why is this happening? And whenever you ask the why question, you're asking about cause, you're asking about purpose. And whenever you're asking about cause and you're asking about purpose, you're asking about God. The wrestling goes like high level, something like this. If God is God, as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, he is both sovereign and good. But when we encounter evil and we encounter suffering, we conclude from a human perspective that either God is good, but he isn't sovereign, right? Like he wanted to stop the evil, he wanted to stop the suffering, but he couldn't. Couldn't quite pull it off. Or we conclude that God is sovereign, but he's not good. Right, that he's malevolent, that he has evil purposes. This is real. This is what is often referred to as the problem of pain. Right, you say that God is good and sovereign, then explain suffering to me. It's legit. It's a legit wrestling. It's a legit question. But there is a third way. There's a better way to think about this. Rather than concluding that God is either good but not sovereign or sovereign but not good, we uphold with the scriptures that God is sovereign and he is good. That he created a universe in which evil exists, but he never does evil, nor is he the author of it. And in his sovereignty and wisdom, God works through even the evil intentions of creatures to accomplish his good and redemptive purposes. Think back to just last week, Genesis 50, right? 48, 49, and 50. We thought about this. We've thought about it a lot in the Genesis series, how the Lord works through even the wicked intentions of fallen men to accomplish what he means to accomplish. Now, how all of that hangs together in every detail, we do not fully understand. It is mysterious to us. The Bible is clear. We can own this part. We should talk more like this. The Bible is clear about the human cause of evil and suffering, and that's sin. In that sense, we have done this to us, and God has let it be. The Bible is also clear about the character and the nature of God, along with his ultimate purposes and redemption, and we can rest there. But the sovereign, the secret will of God, the decreed will of God, how things unfold in detail is not ours to know. The secret things do belong to the Lord. And the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. That is the most 
humble, honest, and responsible position to maintain as we try to speak and love people who are suffering or even when we are suffering ourselves. Those were my observations at this point. I want to take us back to the text. Look at verses 16 and 17 for just a minute. This is a huge pivot point, a turning point in this psalm. Asaph is going to tell us how things changed for him. Sorry, I'm having trouble with my mic, guys. So we've already heard from Asaph. Here's where he was. Here's how he assessed the lives of the wicked. Here's what his own assessment of his own life was. And then in verse 16, he tells us, it had seemed like a wearisome task to try to understand these things. By these things, he means his heart, his mind, his life, the lives of the arrogant, the lives of the wicked. It was a wearisome task. Like I'd basically given up on the whole project. But then he went into the sanctuary of God. In other words, he went into worship. And God, as we like to say, God did a thing. He did a thing. Asaph's perspective was changed. He was given wisdom and insight into what is really going on with the wicked and with himself. With the wicked, look at verses 18 to 20. He realizes that things will not go well for them in the end. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. Their situation is not as secure as it seems. It's actually precarious and dangerous. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It will happen like that. Their end will come like that. And then in verse 20, it will be like a nightmare for them when the Lord acts in judgment, when the Lord acts with justice. In the sanctuary of God, Asaph sees the Lord as the upright, just, impartial judge of the universe that he is. But then he also, regarding himself, his perspective has changed. He sees himself for who and what he is. He realizes his bitterness and foolish and ignorance. You can see this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, he says. Now, I trust in this assembly, this goes without saying, but I'm going to state it explicitly. God is the one who changed Asaph's perspective. Amen? God did this. God gave this man wisdom and insight. God showed this man his own error and brought him to a realization of the truth. In other words, God repented Asaph. Asaph was not doing well. In his own admission, he had all but mailed it in. To even try to figure things out was too much for him. And then God showed up. Asaph's testimony is this. I was bitter and ignorant. I was wrong. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Now, massively important thing for us right here. 
We consider this often. We can't hear it enough. Asaph's testimony is a great reminder of a critical truth. And that is that it is God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him that will carry the day. Okay? It is God's faithfulness to us because he is always faithful that will save us in the end. We strive to be faithful to him. Amen. We exhort one another to be faithful to the Lord and his word. Amen. And we go to sleep at night and we do everything that we do knowing that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Texts like verse 23 and 24. I don't know if you're like me. When I'm reading this psalm, you can see the change that's occurring with Asaph. But he's just admitted. He's just said, I was bitter. I was wrong in my heart. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was acting flat out like a fool in the face of the Lord. You hear him, you read those words, and then the next words out of his mouth are that, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold my hand, and you guide me, and you'll receive me to glory. Texts like that only make sense in light of Christ and the gospel. Only. If we're talking in terms of merit, if we're talking in terms of like, having a heart that is after God's own heart or whatever we want to insert there, this makes no sense because he's acknowledging how wrong he was. Yet God is faithful and God is a redeemer. Asaph says, I was brutish, ignorant, bitter, like a beast toward you. And so you judged me because of my iniquity. Oh no, that's not what it says. Praise God. It's not what it says. I was brutish, ignorant, bitter like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm with you all the time, and you hold my hand, and you guide me, and you will save me. That's grace, saints. That's steadfast love, right? That's covenant love. That's gospel. The gospel tells us of God's eternal plan to save us by his grace. It has always been the plan, and Jesus came to do it. Jesus came, by the way, he's the only person who ever came to do the gospel. We don't talk like that here. We don't do the gospel. Do we live under the gospel? Amen, we do. Do we live in light of the gospel? We do. Do we herald and proclaim the gospel? We do. Do we do the gospel? No way. Only Christ did. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Keeping the covenant that Adam broke, fulfilling the law perfectly, accomplishing all righteousness so that by faith in him, all the righteousness we ever need is given to us. He came to die an atoning death, to make satisfaction for our sins, to bear the penalty of the law that a lawbreaker deserves. And his death by faith is counted as our death. It is as though we have died. Jesus came to rise from the grave so that in him we might be resurrected to eternal life with God. So like Asaph saints, take comfort in this. And in what I'm about to say, I am not trying to be cute. I'm not trying to be hip. I'm not trying to justify or condone anything. But like Asaph was, we often are. We are often a mess in our minds and hearts. 
Think about yourself as I think about myself. I and we have broken all of God's commands. And when I say that, I'm sure there are people sitting there and thinking, brother, that's an overstatement, I think, that I've literally broken them all. Well, according to God's word, you have. So have I. James chapter 2. If we break any part of the law, we are accountable to all of it. Because the one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Right? I'm also thinking, Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. The standard of righteousness according to the law is what? Not external conformity. Heart, mind, affections, desires, motivations, everything. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you've lusted after someone, you've broken the law. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you've had anger in your heart towards a brother, you have broken the law. In that sense, we have broken every one of God's commands. We also have never really kept any of them. Because to keep God's commands perfectly means that we do everything out of pure motivation and perfect love for God and neighbor. And we've never done any of that, not for five seconds. And I, we, still struggle against sin. I know I'm not the only person in here this morning battling against the flesh, aware of the war that is on our hands. One of the reasons that we gather here like this all the time is so that we can be given nourishment from God, from the word and the table with each other in song and prayer so that we can press on in this life. I, like you, feel things I don't want to feel. We think things we don't want to think. We don't feel the way we want to feel. We don't think the way we want to think. I don't know what else to call that other than being a mess sometimes. So when we look to ourselves, speaking in absolute terms, there's not a lot to hope in. But, oh, beloved, consider Jesus. Consider him and look to him. Completely by grace, not merit, through faith and not works. As Christians have said for hundreds of years, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus are counted to us and given to us by God. Forgiveness of sins, absolution of guilt, satisfaction for sins, righteousness, and the holiness of Jesus counted as our righteousness and as our holiness. When we say that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. This is what we mean. He looks at us, and our record is his record, because he gave us his record. He took ours and made it right. This is the beauty of the gospel as compared to the law. The law says, do this and you will live. But the gospel says, Christ has done it. Now live in him. And so we can rest, even in the midst of war. Before we move on from this section of the psalm, this is really important. Again, speaking in absolute terms, how do we know that God loves us? Speaking in absolute terms, how do we know that God is good to us? How do we know that God is gracious to us? We also can't consider these things enough. Now, before I go any further, let's acknowledge some things. God gives us many good things in this life, does he not? I've experienced them this week. You have too, I trust. Many good things, many good times. He is a good God. God works also 
in our lives and grows us in ways that are very encouraging. I'm talking about the ways that he sanctifies us. We can see it in ourselves sometimes, but others see it in us and point it out. We see it in others and point it out. And we are rightly encouraged by that. Amen? We are. And speaking in absolute terms, we will not know that God is good to us. We will not know that God loves us. And we will not know that God is gracious to us by looking at our own lives. Hear me. We will not know that God is good to us and loves us and is gracious toward us by looking at our circumstances in comparison to what's going on with other people. And often when we start doing that thing, looking at our lives and looking at other people's lives, even in the church, because of our sin and because of the reality of suffering, that whole project often ends in envy and covetousness. Beloved, it is not our lives that are the evidence of God's goodness and love and grace to us. It is Christ's life for us that is the evidence of those things. Definite article, the evidence. Jesus for us. He is the evidence that God is good and loving and gracious to us. This is one of several significant reasons why we must continually take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Christ. Of course we need to do that in thinking about our righteousness and thinking about our peace with God and all of that. Absolutely. But when it comes to this whole thing, how do I know God loves me? How do I know he's good to me? How do I know he's gracious to me? I need to stop looking at me and my circumstances and consider Christ for me. Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection, his work in the place of sinners is the greatest testimony in the history of the universe when it comes to the goodness and love and grace of God. Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. He saw the righteousness and justice of God. He saw the end of the wicked. He saw the covenant faithfulness of God to him as his redeemer. God showed him these things, repented this man, and he was changed. May God do this for us as people even this morning as we sit here. This brings us to the last four verses of the psalm. Verses 25 to 28. Just listen to these wonderful words again. After Asaph has proclaimed good news of what God will do for him, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. When you read that, when you hear that read, does your heart not well up within you? I trust it does. Every believer in this room is thinking, all right, I believe that. Father, help me believe that. And we're thinking, Father, I want to feel that in my bones. 
make me, cause me to feel this, is the prayer of the saints. Whom have I in heaven but you? No one. There is nothing else that I desire on earth besides you, because you are my salvation, my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my provider, my glory, and my joy forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, and they will. My physical body will fail me. My flesh wages war against my spirit. My heart is prone to wonder. But God is the strength. Literally, God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. As Asaph has reflected back, we see how his perspective changed, changed in a big way. We've already considered how God did that work in Asaph's life, and it's pretty remarkable. The one who once envied the arrogant and the wicked is brought to see their end, that it is not good. The man who once questioned God and was ready to mail it in, maybe walk away from the whole thing, is brought to a place where he says, the nearness of God is my good. He's brought to a place where he says, I've made the Lord God my refuge, and I'm going to tell everyone of his works. Praise God for how he works in his saints. As we're coming to a close, it should be noted that God did this in Asaph's life through suffering and weakness. You, you see that. He did this through suffering and weakness, not apart from it. This is also something we've considered a lot lately. This is what God does. It's how he works. Why it is this way, we don't fully understand, but we can all acknowledge it's the clear teaching of the scripture. Our salvation was accomplished through the suffering of Jesus, the Messiah. And you can't, I can't anyway, I shouldn't say you, but you may track with me here in just a second. I can't think about these things and not think about something like Mark chapter eight, where many were familiar maybe with that passage. Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ. It's a big moment. And immediately, Jesus begins to talk about his suffering, his death. And Peter corrects him. It's a wild passage, right? He corrects him. Basically, Peter's like, look, I mean, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You ought to be talking about glory, not suffering. You ought to be talking about Heroism and victory and triumph, not suffering and weakness. And then, of course, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that they will all take up their cross and follow him. And that they, too, will live a cruciform life. It is through suffering and weakness that God saves Brothers and sisters, we trust in a crucified Savior, and ours is a cruciform life now. We will be weak now. We will suffer now. We will not triumph in obvious ways now. We trust in Jesus Christ, and we take him at his word that deliverance is coming and that glory is coming, but not yet. We don't think that it would be this way. And we certainly would rather it not be this way. But we do, as the church, need to recalibrate our thinking because we tend to look for God in all the wrong places. 
We look for God in things that look incredible, that look flashy, that look strong. When in reality, our God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Through the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ, he saved his people. One last big observation. Everything that God did for Asaph, thinking in these terms, right? Everything that God did for Asaph, you realize that it did not do a thing to change the fact that the wicked still prosper. God changed his perspective. Amen. It did nothing to change the fact that the wicked still prosper in this world. Not a bit of that has changed. 3,000 years later almost. And it still hasn't changed. Our lives, not only will the wicked still prosper, but our lives will often still feel hard, like his. What God did is give Asaph grace and wisdom to see what is going on underneath and behind what we see. In the church, Saints, we are helping one another press on. We are helping one another die effectively with dignity and with hope, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And through it all, God is faithful. We rest in the Lord Jesus and we rely upon his spirit. This is why we say that Christians are not people who don't struggle. Christians are not people who have everything figured out, who understand all the finer points of exactly how God works. But what we can say with confidence is that Christians are people who believe and say things like this. We believe and say things like, my heart and my flesh may fail, and they have. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We believe and we say things like this. Though we have failed him too many times to count, he has never failed us, and he never will. We believe and we say things like this. There have been times when we've been foolish and bitter, but we know that the nearness of God is our good. And we believe and say things like this. In Christ, God holds our right hand. He guides us with his counsel and afterward will receive us to glory because of his faithfulness, not ours, and because of Christ alone. And so we have peace and we press on. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for your grace. We pray for strength. We pray for faith, that we would trust Christ, that we would trust all of your promises that you have made to us. We pray that we would heed your warnings. Father, give us grace that we might live according to your word together. We pray for your protection over us, that you would keep us from sin and the evil one. We pray that as we continue in worship and come to your table and sing and are blessed on our way out of here, that you would continue to minister to us and meet us in our need. You are good, you are faithful, and you love us. You have shown us that ultimately in Christ. We thank you in his name, and we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.